0: Well, good evening, everyone. Um, Exodus chapter 4 is where we... be. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read a few verses at the end of chapter 4. It will come on the screen behind me. Exodus chapter 4. And we're kind of looking at revival in Egypt. Did you know about a revival in Egypt? Probably not. Maybe as you read this passage, you go, where is the revival in Egypt? But it'll be the very last verse that we read, spoiler alert, of chapter 4, that I'm taking my... I'm a sermon from tonight. So Exodus chapter 4, starting at verse 18, it's on the screen behind me. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are now dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. Then verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything that the Lord had said to him, and also about the signs that he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before his people. First 31, listen to this, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. They bowed down and worshiped. Let's pray one more time before we unpack this passage together. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come. We ask you to be our teacher tonight. We ask you to come in power, Holy Spirit. And open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to the reality of what you want to say. Speak deeply into our lives, speak deeply into our church, speak deeply into our circumstances. Ask, God, that you will interrupt our lives, that you will awaken us, awaken us to this truth. And we ask these things in your name for your glory. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, the passage that we've just read sees Moses and Aaron go on one of the most famous of mission trips that I know of, If you were to jump back 3,500 years ago, you'd be in the book of Exodus. You'd be in that Old Testament chapter that we're looking at. And the most powerful nation in the world as you step around and look around that culture is Egypt. They are the world superpower. No one else compares to them and they are ruled by the mighty Pharaoh or the Pharaoh is the king of that nation. Exodus 1 begins with a paranoid Pharaoh. So you might want to use your Bible, open your Bible and be in Exodus 1 and we can flick about the first few chapters. Exodus 1, he's paranoid. He's paranoid because the Hebrews or the Israelites had grown in such number that they're actually a threat to his superpower. He's paranoid because he thinks If there's rumors of war or some other nation doesn't quite like us, they might kind of team up with the Israelites or the Hebrews, and they might fight together, they might come together, and they might rebel against us. And that's not good if you want to kind of hold on to power, you want to be the world's top dog superpower. That's not good. So what he decides to do is put these people slaves. Probably at this time, they're about 1.5 to 3 million. He wants to make them slaves. And what follows beyond this is actually 400 years of slavery. Tough times, hard times, oppressive times, times of affliction. And whilst that might sound harsh enough, before we even turn the page of chapter one, there's this one more horrific thing that the Pharaoh declares or says to the people. And it is this, at the very end, he orders that the midwives kill the baby boys, in order to control or to curb that population. It's a horrific ending. Like, it's bad enough that they're in, treated as slaves for 400 years, but worse again, they are told that if you have a baby boy, that baby boy must die. We start chapter two then, and one life is spared, or the life that we get to see that's spared is Moses' baby, Moses at this stage. Time goes on, Moses grows older, and God hears his people's cry. And that's really what the book of Exodus is about. It's about God going to rescue or sending someone to rescue the people from their affliction. It's a book about redemption. It's a book about deliverance. So as we come to chapter 3 and that really famous story of Moses at the burning bush, this is what we read. Chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them cry out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Maybe the interesting thing at this point, just to pause, is we don't know how long the people have been crying out or calling out to God. But at this point, God is aware of their suffering. He hears their suffering. And maybe you're suffering. And maybe you think to yourself, I'm just praying and crying out, and I'm not even sure that God hears me. God hears you. Verse 8 of chapter 3. So I have come down to rescue them, says God. First hand says, so now Moses, go. I am sending you to the Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I'm not sure if you had a chance ever in your life to be in a mission team. I've had the opportunity to do it a few times in different parts of the world. I highly recommend if you get an opportunity in your life to go on mission, to actually go on mission. But I wonder what it'd be like to be part of this mission, to go back 3,500 years ago and be part of this particular mission trip. Could you imagine being part of this you could imagine the pitch that might have been 3,500 years ago to get you to sign up to this mission trip. So here we are, 3,500 years ago, and I want to invite you tonight to join up, to sign up to Project Let My People Go. I have a team at the back who are there who want you to give your details and to sign up. Here's the pitch. Do you want to join Moses and Arn on one of the most famous, one of the most legendary mission trips of all mission trips? So famous will this mission trip be that an entire Old Testament book will be written about it, Exodus. So famous will this missionary trip will be. This place called Hollywood in a number of years' time will make several movies about it. One will be a cartoon with a nice catchy soundtrack that comes along with it. The other will actually be this action-packed movie with famous blockbuster actors in it as well. Do you want to travel to the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt? Famous for its education. Famous for its unmatched military strength. Famous for this new, exciting building structural program that they've just started called the Pyramids. Famous for their holographics, which is the original Moshikon language, isn't it? Do you want to go and meet the most powerful ruler in the world? Do you want to go with this simple statement, which is this, Pharaoh, let God's people go. That's all you have to say. Do you want to perform signs and wonders. If you have answered yes to any of these questions, then please see my team at the back. They will be wearing let my people go lanyards. I encourage you to sign up. The first 10 people to sign up will get themselves a little Moses and a burning bush souvenir to take away with you. Sounds exciting, right? Get me to the back to sign up. But as you're on your way to get to the back to sign up, because you want to be one of those first 10 to get the little statue, As you're on your way to the back, your parent or your spouse or your loved one or your friend takes you to the side and they say, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Have you you thought this through? Have you thought this through? Who's leading this team? They push back. Moses, you reply. Who is Moses? They ask. Well, Moses is this really super famous Old Testament Bible character. They push back a little bit further. Isn't this Moses some 80-year-old senior citizen? You're going to trust this guy to lead one of the most famous, dangerous mission trips in the world? You're going to trust this OAP? Isn't he a little bit crazy? Like previous chapter, doesn't this Moses guy talk to burning bushes? Isn't that a bit crazy? You going to trust him? Didn't he come up with four excuses as to why he couldn't lead this team? You want to go with that guy? You want to go to the back and sign up with that team? And didn't I read something about Moses killing an Egyptian slave master once upon a time? Didn't he bury the body, but bury it really badly, and it got discovered and found out, and that upset the Pharaoh, and that upset the Egyptians, and as a result, he had to run and flee for his life. So this is an 80-year-old who's reluctant, who talks to burning bushes, who has a criminal record, who did a runner and has been living as a fugitive for the last 40 years in this back-of-beyond place called Midian. You want to go with that guy? You want to go with that guy to the pharaoh and you want to ask the pharaoh to release some couple of million slaves knowing that God's going to harden his heart, knowing that Pharaoh is going to be opposed to you and hostile towards you, you still want to sign up for this trip? I dare say my staff at the back wearing their lanyards let my people go would have quite a quiet night and probably they would go home with most of their souvenirs that the first 10 were supposed to get. Sounds very risky, this chapter, doesn't it? Sounds very dangerous. Sounds absurd that God would call a Moses this. But that's exactly what happens in Exodus. God calls an 80-year-old flawed and failed Moses to this mission. And he sends Moses and Aaron with this message of hope. And we see at the end of chapter 4 this revival or revival of hearts with the people of God in this slave camp. What is revival is probably the question that we want to ask. I read this with John Piper this week. He says, The idea of revival originates in the reality that God is the decisive giver of all spiritual life. Revival is a fresh outpouring of God's life-giving spirit on his people. So here we are in chapter 4 and revival comes. But it comes after many years of obscurity. It comes after many years in a wilderness. It comes after many years of oppression. It comes after many, many years of waiting. At the point where it seems most impossible, God shows up and does the possible. Who is this Moses? Let's look at Moses. So this morning, if you were here, we kind of skimmed over Moses' life a little. Let's look at it in a little bit more detail as we work our way into chapter 4. I kind of give it away already. The first time we meet Moses in chapter So we kind of said this morning, if we're going to kind of chop up the life of Moses, you had the river, you had the palace, you had the wilderness, and you had the tent, or the final years of his life. So the river years start in chapter 2. Baby Moses, because there's this death threat over his life, his mother places him in a basket, places him on the River Nile for safety, to spare his life. Pharaoh's daughter happens to find Moses, lifts him out of the water, adopts him as her own, and he lives in the palace for the next 40 years. This is a time of great opulence. And it's all right for Moses. Like, I love the 40 years in the palace. That sounds good for Moses. But all the while, his people, his people are still slaves. They're not living up in a palace. They are slaves to the Pharaoh. 40 years passes. And then one day, a 40-year-old Moses steps out in chapter 2, verse 11. We read many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went to visit his own people, and he saw how hard they were being forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrews. Now, if you're writing a story about rescue, if you're writing a story about deliverance, if you're looking for a top missionary to send at this point, you're going to send Moses at this stage. Send Moses now. He's 40 years old. This is perfect timing to send someone. He's strong. He's impressive. He's able. He's ripe for leadership. This is Moses at peak condition. Send Moses now. Let's see what happens next. Verse 12 of chapter 2. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed an Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. wasn't expecting that. That's not a great first day in the job, is it? Moses has a calling on his life. He knows he has a calling on his life. He knows that he wants to go and release God's people or liberate God's people. So there's a calling on his life He's just got the timing all wrong. That's exactly what's happened. He's a calling in his life, but he's got the timing all wrong. It's important that there's a correct calling in your life. But equally important, it's important that there's right timing over your life as well. Because if you get the calling wrong or if you get the timing wrong, then the temptation is that we just take things into our own hands and we deal with them as we see fit. And that's exactly what Moses does at 40 years old, doesn't deal with it well at all. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the worst thing that can happen to a man or a woman is to succeed before he or she is ready. The worst thing that can happen to a man or a woman is to succeed before they are ready. So all of a sudden, we crash out of the palace and we end up being in the wilderness for 40 years as Moses is forced to run and hide in the back of beyond. As I said this morning, you don't get to hear a lot of the 40 years in the palace as to what he did. But equally, you don't get to hear a lot of the 40 years in the wilderness as to what happened. So other than, well, he gets married, he starts a family. Jethro is his father-in-law and Jethro trusts him with some sheep. So other than that, we don't really get to hear much of his life. And nothing seemingly significant happens. Until one day, Moses is out minding sheep and minding his own business. And a bush catches on fire. But it is not consumed. And out of that bush, God speaks. And when God speaks, it's time for Moses to step into his calling. Because the timing is right, because it's God's timing. He steps into the calling, but he steps in with God's plan. So it's not Moses' plan anymore. It's God's plan. And that's the difference in this passage. I love what Chuck Swindle says. Because this is like, I don't know. I know some young people that are sitting here tonight are going on a mission trip in a few weeks' time or over the summer. And if you ever run past your parents, the person that's leading the team, and you go, 80-year-old, criminal record, fugitive, guy called Moses. I dare say your parents would go, there is no chance in the world that you're going on that team. No chance. This is what Chuck Swindle says of this 80-year-old, criminal record, fugitive Moses. God will use our failures and setbacks to cultivate within us a servant's heart. That's part of the process. Moses was willing to be obscure, to dwell apart from the limelight, to accept his new status, God will use failure in your life to break down that strong desire in your heart to see your name in lights. And when God finally breaks you for that, from that lust of recognition, He may place you before the lights like never, like you never imagined. But it won't matter. You won't care if you're prime time or small time, center stage or backstage, leading the charge or packing the baggage. Sometimes God has to send us into those years of wilderness just to to break us, to chip things away, to break things, to free us from certain things in our life. So here we are in chapter four. Center stage is an 80-year-old, an 80-year-old Moses. Did you notice what Moses does first? It was in verse 18 that we read in chapter four. What's the very first thing does he goes back to his father-in-law Jethro and he says this please let me return to my relatives in Egypt go in peace Jethro replied that's a really strange detail isn't it maybe you don't think it's strange I think that's a really strange detail why would you ask permission to go on the most famous most legendary mission trip in the world Why would you ask permission of Jethro whenever in the previous chapter God from a burning bush spoke out loud to you, called you, commissioned you, sent you, told you what was doing? Why would you then go to your father? Why would you go to anyone and ask for permission? I thought that was strange until I I thought about it a little further. And I think he does it for two reasons. One, I think it's really simple. I think it's just courteous. I think it's just a nice thing to do to do. Remember who Moses is? He went as a nobody into the wilderness and Jethro adopted him in a sense as his own son, took him in, treated him as a son, allowed him to marry his daughter, give him sheep, trusted him enough to look after his sheep. Looked after. I think it's just kind. I think it's courteous. I think that's one reason. I think the other reason is that it shows that Moses has, has grown up or he is matured. And the reason I say that is because you could imagine 40 years earlier, a young, maybe arrogant Moses going to Jethro and just kind of saying, here's the deal, Jethro. I have been called by God. I am the one chosen person to go on this mission. And what's going to happen next is I am leaving. You just need to deal with that. You just need to go over that. I've been called for this super important mission trip. Drop the mic, get on his donkey, ride off as all cool missionaries would have done back in the day. But notice he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that because he's matured and because he has changed. Something has changed in his heart. It's a small detail, but I think it's a significant detail. And it shows us that the wellness. Years were not wasted years. They were formative years. God has been at work in his life. God has been at work in his heart. God has been transforming in his life. So, with Jethro's blessing, Moses and his family get on the donkeys and they ride out. And before we end chapter 4, we see 29, verse 29. Moses and Aaron return. Egypt So for Moses it's been 40 years. Him and Aaron return, they call all the elders of Israel together. Aaron told them everything the Lord had told Moses and Moses performed miraculous signs as they watched. here's verse 31 and I love verse 31 and it's the one that we're swimming in on. Then the people of Israel were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped God. And I love that. I love that detail. And the reason I love that detail is because this is the first time in 400 years that worship has been rising up from this Nation. For the first time in 400 years, after their oppression and their hardship and their hopelessness, worship is again rising up. That's significant. I don't know if that excites you, that excites me. There's a new song, there is a new anthem, there is new hope, there is a new attitude in this slave camp. The sounds in Egypt are changing. Like, for the last 400 years, it's been this pharaoh who has just been barking orders and making up these crazy decrees as his voice that has dominated the airwaves for the last 400 years. But now, all of a sudden, worship is rising up, not to the pharaoh, but to the king of all kings. For the last 400 years, the noises and the sounds that you would have heard in Egypt were whips coming down heavy on slaves' backs. The noises and the volume that you would have heard as slave masters yelling and shouting at the people of Israel to work harder, to get back to work, to build more, to do more. That dominated the airways for 400 years, but now the sound of worship is rising up again. An anthem of praise is rising up from this place. And here's the thing. The Israelites are still in Egypt. The Israelites are still in a slave camp. Like this is just the first day that Moses shows up. They don't get released, spoiler alert, until chapter 12 of Exodus. That's another eight chapters away. And it's probably somewhere between nine and 12 months away. Yet here they are worshiping and praising God. So what has changed? What has changed? Their status hasn't changed But their identity has changed. Their status hasn't changed, but their identity has changed. Their circumstances are still the same. Like they waken up the next morning, they're still slaves. They waking up the next morning and they are still tasked to go and build. They are still beaten. Their circumstances haven't changed, but the atmosphere in that slave camp has changed. Bill Johnson says, the gates to your greatest breakthrough are formed from your greatest struggles. I don't know who says this next, quote, but I think it's really helpful. Worship will get you through the roughest of times in your life because it shifts you from your problem to the problem solver. There is power and there is breakthrough that comes as Moses and Aaron speak truth into this situation and as signs and wonders come into this situation as well God hears the people God acts God steps in in chapter 4 and Moses and Aaron go with this powerful message of truth but they also come with these powerful signs and wonders now, doesn't that sound an awful lot like acts only it's the apostles who come with this powerful message of God followed then by signs and wonders And when you take word, and when you take spirit, and you add that together, there is always an unmistakable move of God. And there are many who are impacted. There are many who are saved. There are many who are empowered. And there are many who are equipped for acts and service of God. So maybe there's a pattern here that we need to think about that's there in Exodus 4 and also there in Exodus 2. Maybe the pattern is word and spirit. Maybe the pattern is solid, strong, faithful, truth-filled, Bible, gospel-centered preaching. Also alongside that is God by His Holy Spirit moving in miraculous ways. Word and Spirit. And maybe we need to pray for More of that, not less of that, not more of one side and a little bit less of the other, but both equally. We need to see Word and Spirit poured out. Maybe we need 1 Corinthians 14.1 to eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. For 400 years in Egypt, there was no option as to what church service you go to on a Sunday You didn't get to pick between the 10 a.m. or the 11.30 a.m. Or the 5.30 p.m. or the 7 p.m. You didn't get any of those options because there was none of those options. There was no praise. There was no worship. There was no prayer. There was just silence spiritually for those 400 years. Prayer and worship had faded. A whole generation being raised up who'd never heard worship, who'd never been to a church service before. That sounds crazy, doesn't it, that an entire generation could be raised and that could be what happens. But this was 3,500 years ago. That wouldn't happen today, surely. But maybe as we stare around our culture, we stare around our world, and we stare around trends that are happening within our churches in Europe or the secularization of our society or our culture or what some people call the post-church, post-religion, anti-God culture that we live in, maybe as we think about that and the generation that is coming behind us, maybe the Egypt of Exodus 4 and the Ireland that we live in, or the world that we live in, maybe they're not all that different. Because there are new voices in our culture. There are new worldviews every weak in our culture. There are new powers, there are new decrees, there's new laws and they become louder and they become louder and they suppress and they push the church into the margins and into the shadows. And we could despair at that. Like we could despair at that. We could feel the oppression or the restriction the same way the believers would have done in Egypt. What happens in Exodus chapter 4? God shows up in Exodus chapter 4, and there is a new song. And there's something very powerful about that new song. And there's something very powerful that happened in Exodus 4, and I think there's something very powerful that could happen today as new songs start to rise up and ripple across our land. I wonder do you long for that new song? I wonder do you long for that new anthem? I wonder, do you long for that new melody of worship to come across our land? I wonder, do you long for a fresh outpouring of word and spirit in our land? A powerful message of truth, but also signs and wonders that come along with that. I wonder, do you long for revival to spread and sweep across our land? We're in 50 days of prayer. I'm not going to tell you how to pray. I'll tell you how I'm trying to pray. I'm trying to pray revival into our cities, into our churches, into our land, into our streets, into my heart, into our hearts. To pray for revival. Because I love that revival or some type of revival happened in Exodus chapter 4. I love that Ulster had a revival 150 odd years ago. But my restlessness with that has always been that I don't want to spend my life always looking back to what once happened. And I'm thankful for that. I love that. But I don't want to spend my entire life looking back. I want to be bold enough to pray into that for today. I want to see that today. I want to press into that, lean into that, desire that, go after that, plead with God, beg with God for that, to see a change in our land, because our land desperately, desperately needs a new song, desperately needs that. Here's what I sense God say at the start of this month. At worship rooms, standing at the back, worship, this place was packed with people, standing at the back, just kind of praying and reflecting on the 50 days that we hadn't even started, but what that would look like. And I sense God say this, I haven't shared this with anyone because I just haven't had the opportunity to do it. I'll do it now because I think tonight's sermon is to encourage us to pray and to wait on God and to wait on God's timing, to keep praying, to keep praying, to keep praying, to keep pressing in, to keep leaning in, to not get frustrated with our political schemes, as easy as that is, but to pray into that. Our world, our society, our culture, and the way it's changing and moving, but to pray into that. What I sense God say, and this might not sound very churchy, I felt God say, when it comes to pray, dare me, that was the word I got, dare me when you pray. Dare me to answer your prayers. Dare to pray for these big things to happen. Dare God to pray for revival to come. And that doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like that's what we should be saying. But if you read the Psalms, if you read the Old Testament, it's almost that the people go, God, this is who you say you are. This is you as a God. This is your characteristics. This is who you are as a God. Therefore, act. Therefore, rise up. Therefore, do this thing. And I think as we lean into these 50 days, we get the opportunity to pray big, bold prayers and dare and plead and beg and ask and see what God will do in our church, what God will do in our streets, what God will do in our communities, what God will do in our cities, what God will do in our island, what God will do in our world. And I think this is a sermon where God's going to stir people's hearts for mission, for evangelism. To go into our streets. To share what Jesus has done. I just have that sense that that's what this message is about. So keep praying. Don't give up. Moses could have given up. So easy to have given up. 40 years in wilderness? I'd have given up. I'd have checked out of that a long time ago. It'd been easy for the people to give up. 400 years of oppression? But they didn't. And the reason they didn't is because they cried out to God. And I don't think that is just crying out because... Woe are we, God. This is really tough, God. I think they cried out to God for God to move powerfully. And at the right time, God turned up, showed up, and God moved powerfully with word and spirit. Let's just pray for that. You pray with me? Let's pray.